Well, let's take some time to look at Scripture this morning, please. If you'll grab a Bible, maybe you brought one with you. If you didn't, you'll find there's one in the pew rack in front of you. If you're a guest with us today, my name is Wayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad you're with us. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, or you don't own one, uh, particularly if you don't own one, we'd invite you to take the one that's in that pew rack and take it home as our gift to you, all right? We'd be glad if you'd have that. We're going to look at the book of Nahum today, which is in a very, it's kind of a difficult spot to find toward the end of the Old Testament, and uh, you can see the pew. You, trust me, virtually everyone's going to have to look, if you don't use a pew Bible, you have to look in the table of contents. It's, very, it's difficult to find unless you're like one of those guys that's just got it like that. While you're finding Nahum, let me just bring up to speed a little bit on our family situation. Many of you know that Leslie is out in North Carolina uh, taking care of her parents, We've had a long series of events take place over the last month, and uh, I spent the last week out there. Thank you for your graciousness in allowing me to go out and, frankly, pack the house uh, to move them to Illinois in the next few weeks, sometime probably on the other side of Thanksgiving. So um, I'm batching it right now, and uh, gee, that's fun (laughs) for a fellow like me, (laughs) but nonetheless... um, all is well, mom and dad, all things considered, are you know, okay. I mean, at some point we face this in life, and so we're facing it, and thank you for your prayers. Leslie sends her regards, and we're doing okay, all things considered, and it will be a number of weeks now, and we'll get them here, and we'll look forward to that, all right? I want to start this morning as we look at the book of Nahum by telling you that as we read the book of Nahum, we're going to come across some new technology for that period of time that had been, was invented just for the book of Nahum in some ways. Yeah, I, we, we live in an age of technology ourselves. I was reading recently that there are all kinds of new things coming down the pike for us. For example, one of the things I was reading about is, you know, we all like this solar-powered. Scientists have figured out a way in which to actually embed solar um, cells of some sort in the thread and the fabric of clothes. And so it's not like you're, you're going to, in the long run, none of us are going to be wearing solar-powered clothes. It's not like it's going to be a battery, you know, a pack that's got a big patch of solar cells like that. It's actually going to be embedded in the fabric, in the, in the actual threads. It has significant implications, particularly for first responders, for policemen and firemen. When they go into settings, no longer will they just wear reflective vests that shine when light is thrown on them. They'll actually just glow, Period. Isn't that cool? Or if you're, if you're a runner, you're like, if you run at night, off and run at night, some of you go, he runs? Yes, I run. <laughs> you, you know, I, I wear a little band around my arm that flashes. And, but in the future, it won't be that way. Your actually shoes and your clothes will just simply glow. I think it's really cool stuff. They say this will impact uh, both the car automobile industry and the travel industry. For example, that you know we open the door of our car and a light comes on, right? In the future, though, when we open the door, there won't be dome lights. The whole car will just emit. The fabric in the car will actually just start glowing. I, that's cool stuff. Or in the travel industry, I don't, who thinks up this kind of stuff? I have no idea. When you open your suitcase, it's just going to be an emitting glow. I mean, why do you need a light in your suitcase is a question that I would like to ask, but that's a different matter. It's just going to open. It's cool stuff, I think. Another thing that's coming down the pike is in regards to GPS units. And I was having a conversation with a young man yesterday who's studying uh, for, a, a, he's getting his master's degree 
in um, electrical engineering with a focus on GPS units. And here's something that's coming down the pike for GPS people who are into that. Uh, in the future, police officers will actually have GPS units attached to their clothing, and these sensors are going to be so powerful and so in intuitive that the sensor will know when the car is driving at just a normal speed, but if for some reason the car speeds up very quickly and begins going at a rapid pace, the, the officers no longer have to go, I'm chasing somebody, the car will just automatically, their clothes, because their clothes are moving faster, will automatically alert dispatch that there's a problem going on. Same thing then if they're stopped and they get out of the car and they're moving faster than walking. If they're running after somebody, they're, gonna, they're no longer have to say, I'm running after a crook. No, just the sensor that they're wearing will automatically let dispatch know to send backup. Or catch this, if they unhook their holster and pull out their gun, the sensor in the holster will automatically say, he's about to shoot somebody. We need to send somebody to help him. So there's no more, I'm about to shoot somebody or anything like that. It's simply, it's fascinating stuff to me, all the way in which all this is coming towards us. When we read the book of Nahum here in just a few minutes, I'm gonna, if I can, help you read between the lines and you're gonna see about brand new technology that came about in 586 B.C., that impacted what God was doing in the people of Nineveh. Let me set it up this way by saying that we are stepping back into the series we started last winter. Last winter we said that we we're going to do, take a look at the Minor Prophets, the 12 last books of the Old Testament, six in the winter, six in the fall. We ended last, last March or so in the Minor Prophets. Here we are again now in the last six. We're going to take these all the way up to when we step into the Christmas season. Each week you will have in your bulletin a place where you can see what we're going to do the week following. Next week we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. And I would encourage you, pull out your bulletin, take that study guide home and read Habakkuk this week in preparation for next week's message. All these messages center around a period in the time of the life of Israel that would be helpful for us to just jog your memory a little bit today so that you understand where this is taking place in history even before we read Nahum. Think about it this way. At 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Jesus was born, Israel was at the height of its glory. David had become king, and all was going well. But then, in the, in the years following that, the, the nation began to fall away. And in the falling away, these books were written to um, remind us and remind the people then of what God wanted to do in their lives. These books are not called minor because they are um, small in message. In fact, they are very, very important messages, but they're called minor because they are simply very tiny books, like Nahum is a book of three chapters. So as we look at these um, books, remember that David became king at 1000 BC, and then the nation began to wander away from God and eventually was divided into two. On the screens, you can see that we have this nation, which at one point, as David is king, at 1000 BC, is one full nation. By the time you get to, to the generations beyond that, the nation divided into two. Israel um, was, initially it was all Israel, and then in the years beyond that, as the division took place, 
The group in the north became known as Israel. The group in the south became known as Judah. So when you're reading in scripture and you think they're, and you're reading about Judah, it's in reference to the group in the south. And depending on where you're reading in scripture when it talks about Israel, you kind of have to know the background. Is this when it's a whole nation or just the 10 groups in the no- 10 tribes in the north? When we read the minor prophets, for the most part, it's a, when we see the word Israel, it's about the groups in the north. We see the word Judah, it's the groups in the south. And in 721, as the nation, both portions of the nation began to fall away from God, in 721, the Assyrians came in and literally wiped out those in the northern nation, the northern group, if you will. And to be honest, big generalization here, for the most part, they disappeared from the landscape. 586, the Babylonians came in, wiped out the Assyrians, and overtook Judah. The people who are Jewish today are the descendants of the people of Judah, not the descendants of the people of the north. The people of the north disappeared. And so we're going to be focusing on this period of time, 721, 586. And when you, like, if you read about the exile and everything, that happens after 586. We won't get into all that today, but just to kind of set the frame. We are actually today going to be looking at the time period right at 586 BC in the shift between the Assyrians were in control and when the Babylonians took over. And here's what happens. Perhaps to best understand it, we need to remind ourselves what the scriptures say in the book of Romans about this. Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans in chapter 8 asks a very powerful and potent question that Christians love to ask. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He asks that question. Paul is probably the premier theologian of the New Testament. And he asked this rhetorical question in an effort to help people think big scheme and think big picture. If God is for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he lists some things that could be against us. He says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword. That pretty well takes it all in. If all the worst things could happen to you, Paul says, Regardless of all that, who can be against you if God is for you? And he says, nothing. As a matter of fact, towards the end of the chapter, he continues to answer that question. He says, I'm convinced that in all those things like famine and danger and nakedness and, and sword and so forth, I'm convinced that in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nothing in all of creation, nothing, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Christians, those of us here today who would walk with Christ and say, we're making every effort in our lives to follow him, Christians love that because it says, no matter how lousy life comes, and no matter how much, frankly, there are points where it just sucks, if you will, do we use that word in church? I don't know if we use that word, but we just, we just did. I don't know if we use, do we use that word in church? But nonetheless, somehow that just came out. <laughs> I guess I may get some emails about that this week. I don't know, but nonetheless, don't send them, okay? I promise you I won't use that word next service. When life is really the pits. Paul says it doesn't matter if we know Christ, nothing 
is going to mess with us long-term in the difficulties of life. If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's, here's the reverse flip side of that question. What if God is against us? Paul says, for Christians, God is for us. But what if God is against us? Then we're in trouble. As a matter of fact, the book of Nahum is all about God being against a group of people. Read with me in Nahum, Nahum chapter one, okay? Nahum chapter one, verse one. This is the story of what happens if God is against you. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. So who's this about? Nineveh, okay? Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who wiped out the Israelites in 721 BC. Remember at the top of that screen you saw a few minutes ago? This is about those people. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. If God's against you, it's going to be bad because his way is in the whirlwind and the storm. Clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. And then he lists three cities that in the ancient world were cities of, if you will, of respite and people would go vacation there, kind of like holiday towns, we would say. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. If the Lord is against you, even the places of prettiness disappear. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Think again who the Ninevites are. We, we saw them back in the winter when we were looking at a fellow by the name of Jonah. Remember, where was Jonah called to preach to? Go to Nineveh, right? Jonah was from the south, we think, and he was called by God to say, go and preach to the people of Nineveh and tell them that their ways are wrong and they're about to be wiped out. And he didn't want to go, remember? Because he wanted, he wanted them to get wiped out. They were the enemies of his brothers in the north, and so he didn't want God to come and re- to alleviate their problems. He wanted them to be wiped out. And so he runs the other way. And he ends up in the big fish, and we looked at all that last, last early, early in the year. And he preaches to Nineveh, And what happens? The Ninevites repent and God doesn't destroy them. But here when we get to this point in Nahum, it's about 100 years or so later. A number of generations have gone on and the wickedness of Nineveh has begun to increase again. And God says, this time I've had it up to here. I asked them to repent before, they did, but they messed up with that. So I'm gonna wipe them out. Look how it happens. Chapter three, all right? Nahum chapter three. Woe to the city of blood. This is the city of Nineveh. Full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. This is a group of people that are just incredibly violent. And this is what's gonna happen now in verse two. The Babylonians, 586, the Babylonians are about to come in and wipe out Nineveh. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, and and jolting chariots. Pay attention to the chariots, okay? We'll come back to that in a minute. minute. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. 
Why? All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mysteries, the mistress of sorceries. Biblical scholars believe the main complaint that God had against the people of Nineveh was that they were involved in witchcraft and the way in which this witchcraft is described as being a prostitute that's calling people away from following God. Sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. And then God says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But here it is, God is not for these people. God is against these people. And it's alarming what's going to happen. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, I mean, you're going to be so ugly, people aren't going to be around you. They're going to say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who's going to mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? How is this going to happen? Chapter 2 tells us. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and ruined their vines. And here's the new technology. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of the juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart like lightning. Nahum is describing new technology that the people of Babylon invented right at 586 BC. Here's what they did. For the first time ever, they began to think about psychological warfare. And what they did was they took their shields and they made shields either out of copper so that when the sun, and they brightly polished copper, and so that when the sun hit those shields, it would literally blind the eyes of the people in front of them. Or if they didn't have copper available for each soldier, they would take those shields and they would paint them red and they would dress the soldiers in red for this reason. That way, if a soldier got wounded, the opposing enemy wouldn't know if the soldier had blood flowing and was somebody who could easily be beaten, or whether or not he was a soldier who was ready to fight right off the battle, and he was just painted red so that he looked like he was bloody. And you could think of how you would approach that person differently if you were fighting him. In addition to that, this was rare. that was new. That was new at that time, psychological warfare. And then beyond that, new technology that was just absolutely debilitating, where it says that the chariots are flat with flashing steel. Here's what happened. They took... uh, uh, long pieces of metal that were sharpened to the point of being spears and and swords and they attached them to the rotating axles of the chariots. And so that when chariots came through the, the field where the battle was taking place, they would literally decapitate everybody that they came across. Brand new technology. Not nice, but brand new technology. When Isaiah talks about this, He says that 185,000 people were killed this way. God said to the people of Nineveh, I'm against you. And the result was new technology that was used against them. In Nahum chapter 2, look at Nahum chapter 2 verse 10. There's an interesting way in which it's described. She, Nineveh, is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face goes pale. 
Those three words, pillaged, plundered, and stripped, in Hebrew, the original language where it was written, are all synonyms like they are in our day, but they, all, they were words in that day in Hebrew that sound the same. And they sound this way, that if you take a bottle and turn it upside down, what happens to the liquid inside the bottle? It pours out, right? But because of the vacuum, it goes... Those three Hebrew words there that are plundered, stripped, and pillaged, they all sound like... I tried all week too long to try and memorize them and gave up. <laughs> because what it does, it, it is a, a sound picture that we don't hear in English, but in Hebrew is a description of what's happening to that city who God is against that, God is against that city, and it sounds like in Hebrew, your life is going to be emptied out and poured out like a bottle, completely destroyed. This is what Nineveh looked like. Nineveh was a city that um, had uh, 1,500 towers all around it. Think about this, 1,500 towers, and the towers were 200 feet tall. I mean, 200 feet tall is a, a, a building that's about 15 to 20 stories tall, depending on how the stories are laid out. Think about if we had 1,500 buildings all the way around this community of Decatur, 200 feet tall. Think about what that would look like and what our city would be known for. All those were destroyed by the Babylonians. Why? Because God said, I'm against you. I love Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I'm glad that Nahum doesn't apply to me. Romans 8 says, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of that separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the answer Paul says is no. In all those things we are more than conquerors. I love that God is for me. And no matter how bad life is, using that other word, no matter how bad life is, God's still for me. But for the people of Nineveh, they were so violent and so far from God that God finally said, I'm against you. The towers were destroyed. People were decapitated. Why is that? Because God is a God of justice. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, we read this. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he'll make an end of Nineveh. He'll pursue his foes in the darkness. If you are an enemy of God, you're in deep trouble. You're like the people of Nineveh, and you can be wiped out like an overwhelming flood. But God, in his basic characteristic, is a good God, a excuse me, a refuge in times of trouble. In other words, God is a just God. And that the justice that God has in place is always good justice. We like justice, don't we? Proverbs chapter 28 says this, that evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. And I want to go, well, I seek God, but I don't know if I always understand justice. I, I want to. But I want to figure out, how, what does justice look like? Well, we need to remember that in God's economy, justice doesn't mean that everything is fair. But it means that everything is right. God's justice doesn't say, well, everybody's got to be equal and it's, you know, it's an equal playing field. Not necessarily. When it comes to God's justice, God always does what is right. 
There are lots of examples of this throughout Scripture where God did the right thing, where God did the just thing. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, there's a story going back again just a few years prior to this event in 586 when the Ninevites got wiped out. 2 Chronicles chapter 12 describes the story of the, of the people of Israel back when the nation was one nation. 1000 BC, David is king, followed by a fellow by the name of Solomon, who is his son, followed by another son, a grandson then, a fellow by the name of Rehoboam. And those three men had a lot to do in the nation's future and the nation's story. David comes along and he established the nation of Israel. In a nutshell, God says, you are a warring king. And he is responsible to figure out the boundaries of the nation of Israel against all the Philistines and the people who come against them and to establish a kingdom. And he makes Jerusalem the capital. His son Solomon comes along and says, I don't have to go to war because my father did that for me. What's the most important thing we as a nation need to do? We need to be people of worship. And so Solomon builds the temple. And frankly, the nation gives all kinds of offerings and they build a spectacular, glorious temple. And then Rehoboam comes along and his job is just to keep the nation running. But frankly... He didn't do it very well. You know why? There was no crisis in the nation. There was no financial issue. They'd they'd raised all the money they needed to do. David had done his job in establishing the capital. Everything was going great. And so Rehoboam comes along and doesn't know what to do. And the result is he didn't rely on God. There was no crisis, if you will. No, if you will, no external force outside himself pushing him to look at God and look for God. And we read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he becomes strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Now remember, this is just two generations down from David, the height of Israel's history, of all their glory. Within two generations, they're abandoning the word of the Lord. And the result is that God's hands of blessing are removed from Israel because God says, I'm not gonna bless the people who don't follow me. And so God's hands of blessing are removed. And there's a fellow in Egypt, a guy by the name of Shishak. Isn't that an interesting name? Shishak looks around and he says, hey, maybe Israel's a little bit vulnerable right now. And so Shishak decides he's going to invade the people of Israel. He had 1,200 chariots and 60,000 men on horseback. Think about that. 60,000 men on horseback in addition to the 1,200 chariots. And he invades Israel. This is what happens. Shishak captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. The prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says, you've abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. And look at what the people did. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. The Lord will do what is right. Because we, they came to this understanding, because we've walked away from God, then God has the right to walk away from us. And this is a just situation. So they humble themselves, and look what happens. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. 
It's a story about the justness of God, about God doing what is right and saying, if you're not going to walk with me, fair enough, you can make that choice. But in doing so, I need to walk away from you. I'll do the right thing because that's what you want. You want me not involved in your lives. But the result of that is you are now vulnerable to other people and to other to bad settings. They said, God, we're sorry. And God, again, in justice, this time with grace, comes back and says, okay, I'll come back close to you and walk with you. Now, there's an interesting, can I, can I just do a rabbit trail on this for just a moment? Because I think there's a fascinating uh, lesson for us to learn from this story alone in uh, 2 Chronicles 12. I find it fascinating that within two generations from David as king down to Rehoboam, that the people have walked away from God. And why did they walk away from God? They, were, they, had, no, they had no reason to turn to God. David was the king who established the nation in Jerusalem. Um, uh, Solomon establishes the, the worship in the, in the, in the nation. And, and they work really hard at that so that for the next generation down, everything will be easy. Man, that sounds a little bit like us at times, doesn't it, man? I want to do everything right so that my kids don't have any problems. For those of us who are parents or those in the room who have responsibility for grandchildren or nieces or nephews or everything, anything like that, may I suggest that sometimes we need to let our kids struggle? Because if we remove every obstacle in their life for them, they won't turn to God, figure out, God, can you, and, and pray their way through, through those settings. I think that's something for us to think about, those of us who are responsibility for the next generation. Maybe sometimes it's good for our kids to struggle a little bit and to figure out, hey, I got to go to God about this and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle are not going to rescue this. I got to get me and God together because that's, that's what Rehoboam did not do until he was faced with the crisis of Shishak showing up. That's one lesson. Here's something else for our own congregation though as well. That we are in a pretty good sweet spot in the life of our church. If you look at 180 years of our history, God's been very gracious to us right now, and we are doing things that our church prayed about for years, for generations. We're seeing them come to fruition right now, and I thank the Lord for that. But in the process of where we are and acknowledging where we are right now, let us, can I say as a congregation, let us never ever become arrogant or think we've got it made. Let us always be a people that approach each issue in the life of our church on our knees first and say, God, we will humble ourselves before you. Why? Because you are a God who will always do what is right. You are a God who is just. And if we as a congregation ever back up away from that complete dependence upon God, we're in trouble. Because if you think about it, that's what created this whole problem in the first place, both the problem of Shishak and, and Second Chronicles 12 and the problem of Nahum. These people just stopped relying on God. Which brings me to how does this apply to us this week specifically? Because when you read about God taking vengeance, if you will, on the people of Nineveh, it's sometimes, I guess you could say it's easy for us to say, well, so-and-so down the street is really a foe of God and consequently a foe of me or is a foe of mine and probably a foe of God's as well. And we, we kind of want God to come through with some new technology. God, can you wipe him out? Get rid of those people. Make them leave the neighborhood. You know, put them out of business. God, whatever. Get, the, get rid of those folk. Or I don't think, you know, we make our lists about our people we love and the people we even hate. 
I'm looking around. I don't see anybody that's on my hate list in the room today. I was supposed to be funny, but I guess it wasn't. <laughs> Makes me wonder if some of you think you're on. No, you're not on the list. But you're like me, and there are a few people who I, maybe I don't hate, but I'd certainly be willing to say they're not my favorite people in the world, and it would be okay if God had a move somewhere else. You know, my reminder, it's not, that's not the way in which I should... I shouldn't be asking God to bring them down with swords stuck to the side of the axles and wiping them out. As a matter of fact, we just spent a number of seven weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount and the way in which Jesus said we are to approach life. And what did he say we're supposed to do regarding our enemies? Love them. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate that? I don't know if I want God to love them. Yeah, I do. I sp- Here's where I'm landing on this. If, if, regarding the people who come against me, it's my responsibility to ask God to love on them. Excuse me, and me for, for me to love on them. And it's my responsibility to let God be in charge of their lives and let God deal with those situations, not me. And if there is a case where they need to be decapitated, if you will, that better not be at my hand or at my thoughts. Jesus said, you know, it's not so much whether or not you use the sta- you're stabbing people and killing them, but what's in your head? Do you wish they were stabbed? Hmm. I've got to let God be in charge. And I've got to do it from this perspective. If I accept the grace of God in Jesus Christ in my life, how dare I not ask for the grace of God in someone else's life be applied to them, even in the lives of the people who I can't stand? If I'm both audacious enough and humble enough at the same time to ask and expect God's grace to come to me. Shouldn't I ask God's grace to be extended to those people who even I don't understand and who get on my nerves to no end and who I wish would leave whatever setting I'm in? The book of Nahum is very clear as to what happens when people are aligned against God. I gotta say, I don't want that to happen to even my most bitter enemy. I don't think I have any bitter enemies, but I have some people who don't care for me. I get that. But I wouldn't ask for any of that to happen in Nahum, to happen to them. Because the truth of the matter is, I receive grace. I don't deserve it. May God extend grace to all of us because it's bad news. It's bad news if you're ever aligned against God. Hard lesson from Nahum. I'd much rather land in Romans and say, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, that the fact that people are here today, whether or not they know you, at least uh, all of us in this room, God, are people who are trying to figure out Where do we have to land in order to say that God is for us? We land there in the grace of Jesus Christ. We didn't do anything to deserve that grace. But in grace, you sent Jesus. And Lord, we are both audacious and humble, kind of to both extremes in asking and receiving. We humbly receive it. We're audacious enough to say, will you give it to us? Lord, we pray that kind of prayer for those of us who've walked with you for a lot of years and even some, Lord, who maybe have never begun walking with you and today's the day when that's going to begin. 
We never want to be aligned against you or have you say to us, I am against you. The people of Nineveh, God, you aligned yourself against them. They chose not to come to you. It was disastrous as a result. The people of Jerusalem and Shishak standing at the, at the city gates, Lord, and they humbled themselves before you. Shishak went the other way. God, we today would say, forgive us. Bring us back into full alignment with you today, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.